Welcome to this very special episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. Today, we're going to talk about parenting. You guys have heard me talk about this for the most part in every single episode we do. But we've never really had a parenting expert on because obviously it's not necessarily synonymous. So I want to give you the shout out that this is predominantly focused on how we can raise empowered little amazing human beings and have them grow up into the leaders of tomorrow. And that's really one of my greatest passions and missions in life. And if you're along for that mission, then you're going to love this podcast with Dr. Tina Bryson. Dr. Bryson is the author of The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and now The Power of Showing Up, three incredible books in the parenting space. And truthfully, these are resources that I've used prior to having Dr. Bryson on, books that I've read and really achieve some tremendous value from. And Dr. Bryson joins us today to talk about first, even if you're not into parenting, we talk about interpersonal neurobiology, which basically means Dr. Bryson will do a much better job explaining it than I will, but it's the neurochemistry or the neurobiology, the, the brain interactions of engaging with other people. So what's actually happening at that level of the brain when you're having a conversation with someone or maybe when you're parenting someone or maybe when you're leading someone and learning to understand a little bit about what's happening at the level of the brain can be a very empowering place to come at life because now you can understand where they're coming from rather than just assuming that they're like you. So I think you're going to love the conversation. I know I absolutely did. She gives you a lot of really valuable action items, specifically extrapolated from her book and then well beyond into her own parenting experiences. And I obviously pipe in with a lot of my parenting experiences, looking for feedback, looking for advice, because ultimately I realized that parenting is this dynamic interplay between all of the variables, right? And it's not just about what you say, it's about how you interpret it or how they interpret it more accurately. And, you know, learning to look at interactions with any human from a place of neurobiology and neurochemistry can really empower you to learn how to curate your words, learn how to curate your environment and how that plays into even picking and choosing when you decide to implement particular strategies of whether it be parenting or leadership and business, it's very important. You know, your brain has to be receptive to the information. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. So she gives us some really applicable action items that you guys can have right now and apply into your life, both with yourself, with your children, and with anyone you're leading in your life. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Blue Blocks. Our amazing friends from Down Under are now offering worldwide shipping for free. Shout out for that. You're going to get 15% off Blue Blocks just because you're a listener of this podcast if you use the code MUSCLE, M-U-S-C-L-E. When you head over to blueblocks.com, you can also go to blueblocks.com slash intelligence if you happen to forget the code, and then we'll still get you the 15% off. You're going to find some really unique styles. So why I suggest Blue Blocks? One, the styles are actually very, very cool. You guys have seen some really, really nerdy blue blocking glasses. We know that and nobody wants to look terrible walking down the road. Even if you are wearing bright red glasses, they've got the bright reds, they've got yellows, they've got clears, all of which can help to prevent with sore eyes, dry eyes, tired eyes, headaches, migraines, blurred vision, and so many typical things that you're going to get from staring at a computer screen or staring at a television or even staring at your phone. Being inside, staring at your phone is really stimulating to the eyes, really stimulating to the brain, really stimulating to the autonomic nervous system. So learning how to uh, at least modulate it a little bit, at least try to mitigate the stress is very important to making sure that your brain isn't massively taxed and ultimately not stressing out the eyes to the point that 
maybe eventually they start deteriorating. So it's a big thought. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Dr. Tina Bryson. If you do, as always, share with at least one person you know and love. We all know people that are parents. I bet you know two or maybe one. Have a great day. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Muscle Intelligence Podcast. When I heard this lady speak and I heard about her plethora of books, I knew I had to have her on the podcast talking about the power of showing up. And I think when we speak of that from a parenting perspective, that hit me right in the heart because I realize how vital it is to be there as a parent. And, you know, I've spoken to you a little bit, Dr. Bryson, about my current situation, and then we can talk about that on the show. But most importantly, uh, thank you so much for being here. And uh, thank you so much for writing all of this information, these number of books you've got. And I'd love to talk about all of them and empower parents out there with these amazing, amazing skills and thought processes that you've developed. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this. And actually, if those of you who are listening don't even have kids, don't worry. Everything I talk about is based in something called interpersonal neurobiology. And it's really all about how our brains and our minds work in the context of relationships. So you'll find something to apply to any number of your relationships. So when I first heard of yourself, as I mentioned, it was through Dr. Dan Siegel in this concept of interpersonal neurobiology. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> I know it's a fancy word. I like to throw it around because it makes me sound really smart. <laughs> Well, interpersonal is really just obviously between people, but it's really looking at what interpersonal neurobiology is really about is looking at how the mind, which is kind of our subjective experience, what we give attention to, our brain, which is the actual structure of the organ in our heads, but also that's embodied. It's part of our whole nervous system. You actually can't talk about the brain without talking about the embodied brain. It's part yes. of the entire nervous system. So if my heart starts beating faster or I have a, a like a tense stomach, that is all part of my brain. So the mind, the brain, and relationships. So interpersonal neurobiology is really looking at how mind, brain, and relationships all interact to shape who we are. So it's really fun because it can it's kind of an umbrella or framework that can bring in lots of different kinds of science. Now, one of the things you said prior to, to starting recording here, you said it starts to change the actual structure of the brain. And that's important to know. I think people need to realize that you know, these interactions are literally shaping the person you're becoming. And it's important both from a parenting perspective with little people and even as an adult, because I think I also like to empower with people with this realization that, hey, even if you're any age, you can still change it. it yes, it may be structural. It may not be easy, but you can absolutely still change it. So I'd love to just talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So that idea of neuroplasticity or how the brain changes based on the experiences we have, we all have neuroplasticity throughout the entire lifespan. So it's never too late for any of us on anything. And you're right, it is harder as we get older. But really, this was what really got me excited about bringing the science to people in ways that were really practical in terms of everyday parenting. And that is that the ways that we provide experiences to our kids, who we are and how we are with them and what our environments are like and just those sort of daily experiences aren't just shaping their behavior or their character or their minds, but the actual architecture of the brain. So we can think about the brain as an association machine. So what fires together, wires together. So I'll give it a practical example. So, you know, toddlers are known to be a little selfish at times, right? And so I remember with my firstborn, who's actually also a Ben, he was two and he was really selfish and he didn't seem to have a whole lot of empathy for people. And so I knew this idea about neuroplasticity and what fires together, wires 
wires together. And I also know that one of the ways that we can harness changing our brains or neural plasticity is by what we give attention to and what we do over and over and over. So I know I use this analogy about reps and I've never been on a podcast with a muscle intelligence bodybuilder person. So now I'm a little self-conscious about using this analogy, but no, I can use it. Time. But just like every time you lift a weight, you do a rep, that muscle gets stronger. Sure. Same thing with the brain. So it's about what kinds of reps are we giving our kids over and over. So I was like, gosh, my toddler needs some reps when it comes to empathy and thinking about other people's minds. And of course, we have to wait for development to unfold. I can't give him reps on doing, you know, geometry when he's two, when he's not developmentally ready for that. But the brain is ready for all kinds of things often before we know it. So when we would read books together and I could say, look at that bear's face. What do you think he feels? Or what do you think he's going to do next? Or we'd be at the playground and I would see a mom struggling with some stuff and I would say, oh, she's carrying too many things. Let's go help her. Um, so just little moments like that, I was giving him reps that would allow the part of his brain, which is actually the prefrontal cortex, that is a big part of where empathy comes from, getting those reps. So this is key, Ben, because our relationships with our kids and how we show up for them on a daily basis and how we handle discipline and all of these things are reps. They're reps for our kids' brains, and it's changing actually how that brain gets wired and the adult they're going to become. That's so amazing. And it makes so much sense when you think about it. But I, I think the foundational piece that needs to be acknowledged for all parents, and, and it's maybe for all humans, is awareness, right? So one, you have to be aware of their actions. Second, you have to be aware of the ability to respond. Third, you have to be aware of what you want to change and what the, and how, and then what and then how, right? Totally. You've got to have all these prerequisite layers that need to exist of like, well, most parents may not even think about, oh, I want to teach them empathy. They may just think like, gosh, they're being bad. Right. And so having that level of awareness to be able to think your way through, that to me is the most complex piece. I'm sure the interpersonal stuff is obviously another layer, but like if we don't have this foundational piece of like, hey, one, I have to pay attention to what they're doing and actually acknowledge it to walking them down the path of maybe there is a different path. And then what does that look like? So have you ever yeah. kind of gone through, this would be very interesting for like a, an asset to like something you give to, to parents, but like, hey, here's all of the emotions that you may want to teach your children. And here's some examples as to how you might do it. Is that something you've ever done or, or maybe something no. you've ever walked through? No, because actually, and I think, you know, a lot of times, oh gosh, there's so much interesting stuff that's popping into my brain around that idea because, you know, really kids mirror our states. So mm -hmm. when, if we're empathetic and we're kind and we regulate ourselves when we get upset, kids learn that from watching us and they learn it by us helping them. Like another great way to teach kids empathy is to be empathetic with them when they're having a hard time, right? So yeah, we absolutely can teach kids emotions and how to, but Here's the thing. Emotions are very much a part of who we are. They're actually embodied. So we think emotions start in the brain, but they actually typically start in the body. It's a long time before we're even aware. Gosh, I'm feeling anxious right now, but my body has already known that. My nervous system has already known that. And the key is really about teaching kids what to do with the emotions and how to respond and handle the emotions. But I think what you're talking about there is so key because really what you were talking about as you laid all that out is intentionality. 
and being intentional because without awareness, we don't have a choice. We do what is automatic. And, and if we're going to use fancy science terms, it's really the word is automaticity. Yeah. And it's basically, like the brain loves what it already knows to do. So we just go on autopilot. That's another word for it. So we just do what's natural. So if my kid does something that pisses me off. I get a flood of energy in my nervous system and I react and I yell or I grab their arm too hard and say, get over here or, you know, whatever. And I'm without a pause and say, okay, how do I want to handle this moment? What kind of experience am I going to give my kid's brain in terms of a rep in this moment? It's really about creating a pause and being intentional ourselves. That word awareness is everything. We have to be aware of ourselves yeah. and we have to be aware and tune into our kids' experience. It's actually called attunement. It's like two instruments tuning to each other. And that changes everything. Yeah. I think most people end up just modeling, right? We model either what we see in parents or sometimes even model our best example of a great relationship or a relationship was what we saw on television. So, you know, looking at those models and going, well, you know, that's how we learned as a kid. So they're going to learn the same way. I think our demographic listening to this podcast, though, is you know, very high level consciousness, very high level awareness, striving for, you know, whatever greatness is to them in their life. So I think this idea of empowering us with, you know, the skill sets, which is what we're going to talk about today, to actually take action on these things. So let's assume everyone listening, you know, they're working on their awareness, because I think it's always an uphill uh, battle toward awareness, higher level awareness, meditation, paying attention, feeling your internal states. So now we want to start empowering our kids with these great feelings. Actually, I want to kind of take that and segment into, you started talking about this a little bit, is what is showing up? And yeah, yeah so, you know, this level of awareness and intentionality and showing up kind of all bridge together really, really nicely. And I want maybe if you could walk us kind of down that path of what that means from a parent's perspective. Absolutely. Well, you know, Dan and I are probably most known for our book, The Whole Brain Child. Mm -hmm. And then we wrote No Drama Discipline. And then we wrote The Yes Brain. I don't think I have Yes Brain, but I've got the other ones. Okay. Yeah, that one's about how to cultivate balance, resilience, insight, and empathy in our kids. And I remember it because that spells out brie and I love cheese. So that was a good, that was, that's a good way to remember that. But the power of showing up is our most recent book. And it's the book that had to be written. It's the book that we actually had written a chunk of this book in our conclusion of our first book together, The Whole Brain Child. And it was so powerful. We decided to take it out and make it its own thing. And here's why it, I love, I can't wait to talk about this because first of all, it's super hopeful. So if you are going to listen today and you're going to have a moment where you're like, oh, crap, like I feel really bad about my parenting, that's actually a really good thing. Because when we have those moments of feeling a little bit of brokenness or a little bit of regret, it means we're changing and evolving and something better is on our horizon. Yeah. You know, like if I read my middle school diary, Ben, and I thought it was awesome, like what would that say about my development? Like sure. I should look at that diary and feel mortified. And I do. And that's how I feel like in some ways we should even feel that about our parenting as we look back and as we move forward, it's like, oh gosh, I wish I had known this because it means we're evolving and changing and growing. So that's a good thing. So I want to say that. And this, what I'm about to talk about is super hopeful. But the other reason I love the idea of the power of showing up is because it's simple. It will give us a North star and it's the most important thing we can do as parents, because this is based on 50 years of cross-cultural research that one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out so that's us as we've turned out and it's our next generation, our children, is that we've had what's called secure attachment with at least one person. 
Okay, so let's break that down. Now, I'm not talking about attachment parenting, which is like an approach to parenting. I'm not talking about that. This is actually like research. It's about an inborn mammal instinct that when you have a need, when you are in distress, when you are terrified, when there's a threat, you have a biological drive that sends you to an attachment figure to help you stay alive. So if you're a little baby bear cub and you see a predator or you get hurt, you have this biological attachment drive to run to your mother bear or your daddy bear, whoever's there to protect you so that they will help you stay alive. And that's the purpose of the attachment system. And it's born in us as an instinct. So what secure attachment is, is that that attachment system is working really well. And so what we know is that it's one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out. And when I say that, I mean, actually, in terms of how their brains get optimally wired so that that prefrontal cortex gets all those good reps so that they can access all those great social and emotional skills that allow us to be successful. So what is secure attachment? Secure attachment is built based on not perfect, but repeated experiences of your parents showing up for you. And Dan and I have talked about the four S's for ways we can cultivate secure attachment in our kids. Now, before I hit those four S's, I want to say two other quick things. One is that obviously these experiences, whether we develop secure attachment or what's called an insecure pattern of attachment, is based on the repeated experiences we have relationally. So some of us it may be harder for us to provide secure attachment to our kids because we didn't have it growing up with our own caregivers. In fact, 40% of us grew up with a more insecure pattern of attachment. We don't have to necessarily get into all the nuts and bolts of that, but basically it would be where a couple of different things in contrast would be like if you were pretty much alone, isolated in terms of your emotions, like you grew up in an emotional desert. When you had a need, nobody saw it and responded to you. You were kind of on your own. I had one of those parents too. Um, Remember, it takes just one and it might not even be a parent. It might be a neighbor or another friend's parent or a pastor or a nanny or, you know, whatever, or a spouse later in life. It can be lots of different people because our attachment patterns run throughout our whole life. Mm -hmm. So that's called actually avoidant attachment. And then there's another type that's called preoccupied attachment. And that's where as an adult, you grew up with, in your childhood, you grew up with what's called anxious ambivalent attachment. It's confusing because the adult names and the childhood pattern names are, are different. But basically, if you grew up with a parent who was really unpredictable, sometimes they saw and responded to your needs, but other times they were flooded with their own needs so much that they didn't attend to you, or they were really intrusive. And so what happened was they didn't do a good job of soothing you. So you stayed upset and anxious and ambivalent about whether or not you could trust an adult. So that's another pattern of attachment and then the of insecure attachment. And then the third pattern of insecure attachment is called disorganized attachment. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's basically where when you go to your parent to be the safe person, they actually are the source of your fear and terror and pain. And that causes a lot of disorganization in the brain. So what is it that we can do to cultivate this secure attachment if it's one of the best predictors? And here's what I was meant to say a minute ago. So if you grew up with one of those more insecure patterns of attachment, the research is awesome because it says that the best predictor, the number one best predictor for whether or not we're able to provide secure attachment to our kids is not whether or not we had it with our own parents. Thank God, because that's 40% of us. Right. 
what predicts us being able to show up for our kids and provide them with the most important thing for their development, secure attachment, is whether or not we have reflected on those experiences and made sense of them. We're back to your awareness word, right? Mm -hmm. So it's basically like you look back and you go, God, my parents weren't there for me. They didn't help me feel safe. They never showed up for me. I was on my own. Or I, gosh, I had to take care of my parent. Or my dad was an alcoholic and super unpredictable or whatever it is. And you go back and you, you make sense of that. And you do your own work, really, to reflect on that and see how it's impacted you. And then start making some conscious, reflected decisions about how we want to parent going forward. And when we do that, we can get what's called earned secure attachment, meaning we didn't get it in our childhood, but we've earned it by reflecting on it and making sense of it. Sure. And the idea that I've created in myself is finding why you're grateful for it, right? It made you the person you are. It made you stronger. It made you more resilient. Maybe it allowed you the opportunity to overcome stress. Absolutely. And now you've got these new skills. And that's the way I flip everything. It's like, how do we turn this into gratitude and love? And if we can, it seems like it seems to, uh, your emotional balance always seems to shift toward the side of gratitude and love rather than anxiety, fear, and lack. Well, and I'll say that, you know, in adulthood, when we do that process where we've reflected on that and made sense of it, it's actually in the literature called free and autonomous attachment. And I love that because when I did that, when I went through that process to kind of like my mom provided me with secure attachment, my dad, I had that avoidant dismissing pattern of attachment with him. And when I went back and made sense of it and I go, oh, I understand he wasn't able to do that because his parents didn't do that for him. And that was how he survived. And I, as I was able to make sense of it, it was so freeing to me because first of all, I could have so much more compassion for him and how his brain was wired. And it also freed me up to go, okay, so it wasn't that I was unlovable. It was that he, well, his brain was not wired to know how to see my need and respond to it. He didn't have that kind of emotional intelligence. So- right. It can be really freeing. So, okay. So what do we do to cultivate the secure attachment? If we want our kids to have it, the four S's, safe, yeah. seen, soothed, and secure. So I'll just hit those really quickly. The first thing we need to do for our kids, the most important thing we need to do for them is to keep them safe. So the safe is really about two things. Obviously, protecting them from harm. Most of us are pretty good at that. We're pretty good at protecting our children from harm. Obviously, putting them in their car seats, making sure they're sleeping arrangements are safe, watching them around water, all of those things. But there's a second part to this that's something that's a little bit convicting for some of us that we need to really be thinking about. We are supposed to be the safe harbor for our children. So when the world overwhelms them, and that might even be their internal world, they might be flooded with stress hormones themselves because they're upset about something that you might think is ridiculous. My three-year-old raged in a tantrum because he couldn't walk up the walls like Superman, right? So like he's completely out of control in that moment. And I'm supposed to not join his chaos and his falling apart. I'm supposed to be the safe harbor where whatever storm is raging, he can bring his little boat into my harbor and I will protect him and keep him safe. So the second part is really about making sure we are not the source of our children's fear or terror or pain. And obviously, abuse and neglect would definitely fit into this category. And that's really important that if parents are doing things that harm their children, that they get some help because that's going to have a huge impact on how our children are developing. But there are more micro ways we do this in everyday life where we threaten our child's sense of safety. One really common way that we all do, including me, is we become unpredictable in a moment where we get really mad 
and tantrums can be contagious and we start yelling and screaming and we handle ourselves in really immature ways. You know, when one of my boys was three, we had this escalating interaction that was not productive at all. And eventually he stuck his tongue out at me. And I said, if you stick that tongue out one more time, I'm going to rip it out of your mouth. So I threatened to remove a body part, right? So obviously the opposite of safety, right? And we also have a family story later. I was playing Yahtzee with my boys. I got really immature and I was mad because they were fighting. And I said some really immature things like, oh, I'm so glad we're having game night. This is so fun, guys. You know, and then I got so mad, I ended up throwing the dice across the room. So we refer to it as the Yahtzee incident. So that's one way we can really undermine our children's safety is by yelling at them, by being unpredictable and losing our tempers. And another way we can do that is fighting with our significant other. When we fight with our child's other parent, whether we're married or not, and there's a lot of conflict and undermining and yelling, like it's not disrespectful disagreeing, that can be really good for kids to witness. But anytime we have a massive conflict with other people, particularly the child's other parent, that can be very stressful for our kids and undermine their ability to feel safe. So what do we do? Sorry, did you say disrespectful disagreeing can be good for kids or respectful disagreeing? Respectful no, disagreeing. I, disrespectful, I hope I didn't, but I'm glad you caught me if I did. Yeah, I mean, if you are disagreeing about something and you're listening to the other person and you're saying, you know, I disagree with you and here's why, like it can be helpful for kids to watch people respectfully disagree with each other. But if things are escalating, you know, what happens sometimes is like the parents start to fight and it gets escalated and the kids are stressed and they get afraid and they don't know what it means and, you know, that kind of thing. And then the kids are often sent away or the parents maybe work it out. And then the parents have come to resolution and then they feel at peace with it. But the child doesn't often get to witness that resolution. Right. So then they're left and like, gosh, that was chaotic. And then things seem normal today. But what was, you know, it's just confusing for them. So it's more appropriate to say, you know what, I think let's wait and have this conversation later when we can really be able to talk freely. Let's pause on the conversation if we need to. So when we do these kinds of things, Ben, when we have these ruptures with our children, we yell at them, we're too rough with their bodies, or we fight with someone else, or we're screaming at someone on customer service or whatever. It's really important after these ruptures of safety that we make a repair. That's the key to everything. You can mess up all the time as a parent as long as you repair. So what that looks like can be something like, gosh, I got so mad earlier and I didn't calm myself down very well. And I'm so sorry. I wish I had handled that differently. I know that was really scary for you or I was mean. What I said was not kind. And I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? So you go and you make it right. right. And when we do that, it can actually be beneficial for kids because, you know, if you were lovely and perfect all the time to your child, the world would kind of be a scary place. So in a way, we're giving them some reps with sitting in the messiness and conflict that's inevitable in relationships. And we're widening their window of tolerance so that they have more resilience and more tolerance when it comes to conflict, especially because they know we're going to make it right. And obviously, we model how to make repairs and how to apologize. So that's key. I love that you brought that up. Because that's a real conversation that I have with a lot of my friends. So some of the most successful people I know are the ones who went through really challenging childhoods. Yeah. Like people who develop skills and resilience and, and you know, the awareness that we have as 
maybe more privileged adults is like, are we creating sheltered children who have effectively zero resilience to stress? I deal with employees like that all the time. They have the smallest little thing happen. All of a sudden, it's like the world is crumbling around them. I'm like, okay, well, I know what your childhood looked like. And no judgment, but just an awareness that, okay, well, you just weren't given the coping strategies. That's an important thing. So how does a parent approach that? Like you're kind of heading down that path. And I want you to maybe go a little bit deeper into that as like, how do we balance, you know, this abundance life that we live? Many people listen to this podcast and yourself, I'm sure. We have everything we want and need. And there's probably no stress in life and no discipline necessary in life unless we intentionally curate it. How do we go about balancing, you know, creating really, really strong, resilient children who are able to kind of adapt, cope, whatever word we want to use to stressful situations while being obviously in this relatively sheltered world we live in? Yeah, I think that's such an important issue. And in The Whole Brain Child, Dan and I talk about 12 strategies to help integrate our child's brain so that they can actually be more resilient. But I think that that is a huge issue and danger for current parenting is that, you know, obviously there are some kids who have way too much adversity and we need to lessen it. There's like an adversity gap either. And some kids are just really dealing with severe adversity, like hunger and abuse and things like that. And obviously we want to, you know, lessen that, but there are so many kids who have not enough adversity. Okay. Mm-hmm. When I talk about adversity, I don't mean adversity like they talk about in the trauma world. I, I mean like challenges and mm-hmm. struggles and things like that. I don't mean abuse. When we bubble wrap our children and we don't allow them to deal with difficult things, we are making them fragile. And I, I, the same, Ben, I'm hired by companies to work with their employees because they are so fragile. And resilience, and in fact, I'm kind of interested in this idea of anti-fragile because resilience is, you know, being able to like not come apart which is great, but anti-fragile means you're the opposite of fragile, right? Like you, you know, and 70% of people who go through something traumatic, we actually call it post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress, they come out better. But the key is this, if we want our kids to be resilient and tough and able to handle hard things and be able to, you know, mobilize that stress to make it propel them into something greater, we have to give them practice dealing with difficult things. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that we have to do in order to do that is to be able to tolerate negative emotions ourselves. So we are a society that when we feel sad or anxious or stressed or angry, we immediately try and distract ourselves and numb ourselves. And the truth is that feelings come and go. We can actually teach this to kids. And the whole brain child, we talk about it being like the weather, you know, that feelings come and go, they change all the time. And if we can learn to tolerate negative feelings, like, gosh, I'm feeling really sad right now. And to just be aware of that feeling and to sit in it and go, okay, I'm noticing that about myself. I'm just going to sit with that for a minute. And then I can decide what to do with that. If we're not comfortable sitting with our own negative feelings, it's very hard to sit with our children's uncomfortable feelings. So what happens is, here's an example. My 10-year-old wants to stay up later because his 13-year-old brother has friends over. Obviously, you know, this is a story from the past, (laughs) but my 13-year-old has friends over. They're getting to stay up later. So little guy wants to stay up later. And I'm militant about sleep in my home with my kids because I think kids are massively under, they have not enough sleep and it causes a lot of emotional fragility. So um, anyway, he wants to stay up later. 
I said, you can have 10 more minutes and then it's going to be time for bed, which just meant he was 10 more minutes more tired and ready to have an even bigger fit. So as I walked him upstairs, he was pouting and stomping. It's not fair. It's not fair. And as I'm laying him, you know, down into the bed and I'm getting the book out, you know, he knocks the book out of my hands and he's kicking his feet and he's like, he's just yelling. He's so mad. And in that moment, if I can't tolerate that my child is angry and disappointed, then I'm going to do a couple of different things. I'm going to go, okay, fine, go downstairs and be with them. What do I care? You're going to be tired tomorrow and I'm not going to deal with, you know, and I, you hear sure. how easily that comes off my tongue, right? You can easily go into that. Or I can say, you know, I let you stay up 10 more minutes. Now I'm not going to ever give, in, give you anything extra. And so we go into that. Or we get really mad at them and we get reactive and we slam the door and we say, I'm not reading to you tonight. You know, I don't want to hear from you. And we do that kind of thing. But if instead we go, okay, my kid has a feeling of anger and disappointment and I don't have to do anything except Mm -hmm. just be present and let him feel and let him know it's going to be okay. So all I have to do, I mean, that's so freeing. We don't have to fix it. I can just say, you're so mad. You feel like it's really unfair and you're worried you're missing out. I know that's really hard. So I'm just empathetic to what his feeling is. And by the way, this is the second S of being seen. Mm-hmm. where you really tune into the mind behind the behavior, not just the behavior. And I can say, you're so disappointed. You're so angry. You're being left out. And I know that feels really hard. And that's all I have to do. And he kicks and maybe cries a little more. And I say, I know it's really hard. I'm right here with you. And the difference between something being hard that kids can tolerate and it being like tolerable stress versus toxic stress is that when we have difficult things with support, as opposed to having difficult things taken away from us so we don't have to deal with them, that's the key difference. So instead of fixing everything and making sure everything's lovely and perfect, like curling, you know, that sport where you sweep the ice so there's no little bumps, like no curling parenting. Let your kid have the bumps. And then you can say, I know it's so hard when there's bumps. So it's just about being present, letting them feeling, and you don't even have to do or fix anything. And that is how they practice becoming resilient, is having experiences, dealing with difficult things with our presence and support. I think it starts, you know, earlier in the day when the parent becomes aware of like, I should probably take a breath right now because something inevitably is going to happen, right? So maybe the first time they ask the the case, I'm going to go to bed 10 minutes later, you create that awareness of like, I better take a minute now to just like... Totally. Because you know it's coming. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You're about to blow your top and you're like, okay, I got to slow myself down because that's all it is, right? It's like they're reacting the same way you're reacting because they've hit their, the bucket's full. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we really look at how the brain works, you know, we have these mirror neuron systems so that actually we are held captive by one another's nervous systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, clinically, I'm a psychotherapist who's worked with a lot of kids and adolescents and their parents, you know, Almost always when we have a kid who has a significant amount of anxiety, we have parents who are super anxious. And so when their kids are in anxious states, the parents actually amplify those states of distress instead of soothing them. And that's what happens with our kids' anger too. And honestly, one of the things that's helped me the most as a parent in the moment is, you know, we've got these two branches to our nervous system. We've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. I like to think about the sympathetic as like the gas pedal that revs things up and the parasympathetic is like the brakes that calms My audience them. knows it well. Okay, good, good. Another way I think about this, and this is what's been so helpful to me, is to think about a volume dial. 
So when my kid is angry and reactive and saying disrespectful things to me or slamming doors or oppositional or whatever, because they're in an angry state and they're not regulating themselves and they're not able to do that well because that prefrontal cortex is not yet fully built and developed, it's like their volume dial is turned all the way up. So in a moment, my kid's raging out of control, whatever's going on, I can either respond in a way that's going to turn that dial up worse, I mean, higher and make it worse for him and me. That's going to be a lose-lose. Or I can go, okay, my job right now is to turn that volume dial down. And I do that with my tone of voice and my posture, you know, because we also have these neural networks. Like if I get an angry look on my face and an angry tone of voice and I start shaking my finger at my kid and coming at them, Mm -hmm. I'm activating my own neural network of fight. But if I take a breath and I sit in a relaxed posture, maybe even below my child's eye level, and I take a breath and I go, okay, my whole job right now is to turn that volume down. So I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to actually make my exhale longer than my inhale because that'll help my parasympathetic, you know, get kicked into gear. I'm actually going to activate a totally different neural network for myself. So it's going to be easier to stay in control of myself. Have you got your kids aura rings yet? Do you know what no, no, I don't even have one yet. Do you love it? Oh, uh, yeah, it's the best. But so I got it for my kids. So I can tell when their HRV is low, I can predict their stress. Awesome. That's yeah. so incredible. We're using <laughs> things like that clinically for kids who have learning challenges and things like that, who've had educational trauma. And when they work with educational therapists who can kind of monitor that heart rate variability and and nervous system arousal, what they can do is know that they can get kids what we call in the green zone and that sort of optimal nervous system arousal instead of in the hyperactive red or in the hypo aroused blue. And it's remarkable. I mean, getting ourselves in the green zone, getting our kids in the green zone, that's everything. Tell you what, the greatest blessing of coronavirus was that my kids no longer have to wake up at 6 a.m. Their emotional regulation is just completely different level. It's incredible, isn't challenge it? I mean, the challenge of school. If kids are getting up at you know, six and eight years old, getting up at 6 a.m., I think is absolutely ludicrous. It's completely counter to what the science says, particularly for teenagers who, as when they move into their, their pubertal phases, their melatonin shifts and it's harder for them to get sleepy earlier at night. And plus also our super narrow definition of success being achievement based. And so then they, you know, there's all these pressures to get into the right schools and all these. So you've got technology, school pressure and melatonin wars all conspiring to make it so teenagers don't go to sleep. Till super, super late. I was going to ask you, it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you was exactly that. So my youngest, what their school starts at 745 and my older is in middle school and they start at 10. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. Like I think 955 or something. And so I was curious if it would be better the other way around because, you know, I, my brain goes, gosh, younger kids have to need more sleep. Let them sleep in. The older kids can get up and, and they're already gone through the development. But kind of not true, right? They're both going through development stages. Yeah. But what you're saying is it may actually be better that the older kids don't have to go till 10, let them sleep until 8.30 so they can actually get the sleep that they need. Yeah, just because it's harder for them to go to sleep early. Younger kids can go to sleep earlier more easily. So I think, you know, yeah, younger kids do need more sleep, but our adolescents need about 10 hours of sleep and only like 10% of them get that much. So like I said, I'm militant about sleep at my house. Yeah, I'm setting my kids at 5 p.m. now. 
Yeah. It's my kids' school and it's K-12 school all shifted to 8.30 this year every day. And that's great. That's been a game changer for all of us. And I'm such a night owl. I really prefer that too. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we hit safe and and let me just hit scene, soothe, and secure. Okay, great. So like I said, scene is really about looking at the mind behind the behavior. So scene is really tuning in to what your child's inner experience is. This is hard to do. We want our children, though, to leave their childhood and say, my parents got me. Now, what happens is if I'm feeling really disappointed and I complain to my parent about something and they get mad at me, I don't feel seen. I know I'm alone with my feelings. And I know it was such a negative experience to share that with my parent that I'm not going to talk to them about what I think and feel anymore. So let me give an example. This is one I think that resonates with a lot of us. So my husband is a phenomenal parent, way more like regulated even than I am. He's incredible. But I was away speaking and he called me one day. I have his permission to tell this story. He called me one day and said, hey, JP, who's our youngest, has locked himself in the bathroom and I have to go talk to him. And I'm so mad. I need you to kind of like help me you know, handle this better than I'm going to, right? Like, so that's good awareness. That's super good awareness, right? Because sometimes it feels good to yell actually um, at our kids because it releases nervous system arousal. It really does. Like crying, yelling, screaming, shaking, laughing. So laughter is a better way to do it. Moving our bodies, that's a better way to do it. So anyway, he said, I, you know, and I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I told him I was going to take him to the movies. And I thought that was like a really nice thing for me to do. And then he asked if he could have popcorn. And I told him, no, we weren't getting popcorn today. And so then he started to pout and cry because he wasn't getting popcorn. And I think he's being spoiled. And I think he, you know, that's so indulgent if he thinks he should always get what he wants and he needs to learn. So what happens in those moments is our kids complaining or they're, you know, acting spoiled or whatever it is. And it activates a fear in us. Like if my kid thinks the world's going to work for him all the time, he's going to get what he wants. He's going to turn out to be nothing. And in our minds, we're already like worried they're going to just live in a van down by the river for the rest of their life and amount to nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it activates a fear response in us. And it makes us mad because we're like already doing something nice. Right. And they're not appreciative. So I was like, okay, full stop. We need to first go, okay, let's first start with curiosity. Let's be curious. What is happening for him? And the emotion, I'm like, what emotion is he feeling? And he's like disappointed. And so when we talked about it, actually, I had bought him popcorn the last time we had been to the movies. And so in his mind, he was like, popcorn, he got excited. And then dad said, no popcorn. So even though he was going to the movies, he had this feeling of, oh, that's disappointing. I really love movie popcorn. That's a big deal. So what scene is like in that moment is you go, okay, maybe my kid is being a little spoiled right now. And I'm worried about that. And behavior, and this is a big concept, we could do a whole other podcast just on this, but behavior is communication. Our kids' behaviors are telling us, these are the areas I need skill building. I don't have good strategies for this yet, right? So he basically, you know, is communicating, like, I'm not really good at sitting in gratitude when something good happens yet, right? So you can go in your mind, okay, good, I want to work on gratitude and perspective with my kid, but I'm going to do that at dinner tonight. We're going to do something about that later. That's a skill I'm going to build, and that's not my focus in this moment. My focus in this moment is to meet him where he's at. So I say to him, you were really excited when I said the movies. And then when you heard popcorn wasn't going to happen, you felt really disappointed. Is that right? Nod, pout comes out a little bit more because then he's really feeling it a little bit more. That's good. And you go, yeah, it's disappointing when we have an expectation and it doesn't happen. That's really hard, isn't it? You still don't buy the popcorn. This is not about permissive parenting. You don't give in, but you can really help him. He feels seen. So his internal experience and the way his dad responds is a match. 
And he gets this. So if we respond in a way that's negative or we say, why are you making such a big deal about that? Then the kid's like, oh, maybe it's not a big deal, but it feels like a big deal. So maybe I can't trust myself and my emotions. So it, it can actually create a lot of internal confusion. We want kids to trust their feelings, name their feelings, and then move the heck on from them. And the way we help them by doing that is by naming them, joining them in it, and making it okay for him to feel. When we criticize our kids, like, you're so spoiled. Why are you pouting about that? Fine, I'm not even going to take you to the movies. The kid's like, wow, that didn't work so well when I shared my thoughts and feelings with my dad. So maybe I'm not going to do that anymore anymore. And when we say things to our kids like, I don't want to hear it, they internalize that and we will stop hearing it. We will stop hearing from them. So seeing is really about just leaning in and tuning into that internal experience and naming it with them. All right. So for parents who have done that, guilty of all these things. All of it. Me too. How do we start reversing it? So (laughs) my typical strategy, being honest and transparent, is I'll stop and I'll go, hang on a minute. Three minutes ago, you didn't have this movie. If I now take the movie away, will you get upset? Yes. Okay, well, let's go back to three minutes ago and let's get excited about the movie. (laughs) Okay, right, so that's my strategy. So I love that. A little reversal, rather than letting, because I'm trying to not let them have the emotional, again, maybe that's my mistake, is not allowing to, you know, if he starts fussing or they start fussing or whatever, maybe I will, like I say, just stop them, kind of break the pattern, reverse them back and go like, now, would you like me to take this away? Or do you want to go back and feel that this feels good? Yeah. And sometimes that works. Sometimes yeah, I know, don't. right? Yeah. So I think that's a good strategy to slow it down and go back and be like, let's just sit in the movie, getting in the movie kind of thing for a minute, right? And what does that feel like? And then go to the popcorn and let them feel and say, yeah, that's disappointing. It's really hard when we don't get what we want. And that's okay. Sometimes we don't. And it's okay to feel upset about that. Let me know, you know, if you need a hug or when you're ready to go, let's get going to get to that movie. And it's okay to move on. But I think that we just, we need to allow them to know that it's okay to feel. And the reason that this is important is because parents worry when I talk about this and especially leading into the third S, which is soothed, which is where we just help them calm down. We nurture them and we, we help them. And when they're having a hard time and parents worry that this is permissive and indulgent because the world won't help them do that. But what we know about brains and neuroplasticity is that every time they are dysregulated and having big feelings and we show up for them and help them and do what we call co-regulate, we turn that volume dial down or they're really sad and depressed and shut down and we help turn that dial up by movement or engagement or laughter or whatever it is, we are helping them regulate. And what it's doing is giving the brain practice going from a dysregulated state back into a regulated state, from an unoptimal nervous system state of arousal back to an optimal state of arousal. And when the brain gets those repeated reps, that relational experience of that parent showing up and being that safe harbor in that moment, even in the chaos of their internal storm, it gives the brain practice for how to do that so that they can become people who know how to soothe themselves. So it's not about making them spoiled and indulged. It's about giving their brain the practice to self-regulate is really what's happening. I've been doing that and I probably got it from one of your books. <laughs> good, <laughs> good, good, good. Chances are, yeah. So I've yeah. been doing that with just, so I actually, you know, I think most kids are relatively visual. So showing them like with my hand, where are you right now? Where's Perfect. your energy? And like bringing it up and you know, what can we do to bring it up? And then telling them, here's three things you could do right now to bring your energy up. I love and that. Feel better. 
I'm sure I took that from you or Dr. Dan Siegel. I love that. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it really, and we can even teach kids about the green zone and the red zone. And yeah. when you're in the red zone, your heart's beating really fast and your body might feel hot. You might even have red splotches. You might be shaking. You might feel lots of energy in your body. And then what are some ways you can let some of that go in, in productive ways? And that's when I tell my kids, like, it's okay to be mad. It's okay to be mad at your brother, but you can't hit your brother. What can you do with your body when you're feeling really angry? And so let me talk about that. We can teach them about these I things. I like that a lot. Um, and, and yeah, so soothed is actually one of the ways, you know, is actually what we're talking about is beforehand or when we're not in the moment, we can actually teach some kids some strategies for what they can do when they're having a hard time so they can learn some of those self-soothing things. But here's what I really want to say about soothed. At our kids' worst which often looks like bad behavior, that is when they need us the most. Yeah. That's, again, what this attachment system is. So when kids are screaming and yelling, like I love this story about my little guy, JP, who was in the bathtub at five, furious about bath time about to be over. He was just a meltdown mess. And, you know, it's so much easier when our kids are hurt or sick, we can access that soothed part of us very easily. We tend to be more nurturing and it's easy to access. But when it's emotional and behavioral, it's much harder to do. So JP was in the bath raging. I don't want to get out. I'm not getting out. He even said like, this isn't even a bathtub. So you can't get me out of it. Like he was using all this funny logic. And so I say to him, it's time to get out. And by the way, boundaries and limits help kids feel safe. They know what to expect. We're predictable. So I say, it's time to get out. Either you can get out or I'm going to help you out. And he doesn't get out. So as I'm lifting his body out, I say, I know you're so mad about bath time being over. You were having a good time and you're just so mad I'm making you get out. So that's scene. And then I wrap the towel around him and I say, if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you. Do you want a hug? So I just really try to do that. And this is not permissive because once he's not in the green zone and optimal nervous system state, that's where we learn. If you're not in the green zone, you can't learn. And discipline is all about teaching so that they have the skills to discipline, they're self-disciplined. So again, that's a whole other talk. But the first thing we need to do if we're going to address our kids' behavior is make sure they're in a receptive state of mind so that they can learn. So the safe scene and soothe stuff gets them into that green zone so that their brain is then ready to learn where we address the behavior. So I'm helping him and I'm helping him calm down just by saying, I'm right here with you. And so again, we don't have to fix it. We are just present. All right. Here's my parenting strategy. And I want you to critique it if it's okay. bad. This is what I, what I do all the time. And so if a situation like that were to arise, whereby they're pouting, they're not, not happy, they're upset. I would do exactly what you just said, and I would scoop them up. And rather than say anything, I would just play. So I would I would wrestle them, I would tickle them, I would take them out of the situation and try to shift their state. That's kind of my default. Like we, and now they're used to it. Now they're like, you know, it's always like we're gonna go wrestle, or we're gonna go play, or I'm gonna go throw them in the air, I'm gonna tickle them, like something, right? Is that am I doing it wrong? No, not at all. But I would add something. Can I uh, add something yeah, into your thing? Because I think it's wonderful. And honestly, and this is a whole other line of conversation too, but play is the opposite. Like you can't be in a play state and in a threat That's state. Exactly at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so actually when kids deal with fears and worries and anxiety, play is like the antidote to that. Like play and silliness is the antidote to cooperation. Like it's everything. And yeah. as adults, we need to actually be better at having play and silliness in our lives because it's so good for our nervous system and our brains and our relationships. So I love that. And I think your kids know they can count on you to help them get back to a state of regulation. So that's great. But 
we want to make sure that you're not just distracting them from their emotions so that they don't feel them and name them. I'm completely distracting them. Yeah. So I would just say like, oh, you're, you know, you're really mad about this. Are you feeling really sad or whatever? And just like create a space for them to know, like you see how they feel, you understand how they feel. Here's how we can make sense of what we feel with these words. And then you can move the heck on, right? So then you can say, you're really sad. You're really disappointed. I will listen. And you pause and let them talk if they want to and share with you. And you respond in a positive way. So their brain gets a little dopamine hit to reward them for sharing feelings and their internal world with you. And then you say, you can even like have a fun little ritual with them. Be like, are you ready for the, you know, for the tick? Right. Are you ready for the like shift, you know, or whatever? Like you can say like, when you're ready, we can play, you know, but I want to listen first. So I would just add That's in that great. piece, creating so, a space where you are a safe person where everything doesn't have to be fun and games and laughter and silliness that right. you are also someone they can come to with the sadness and the anger and the anxiety. Yeah. I think I, I am, but I think some, I just have an awareness of this, you know, if I'm not there, when one of these situations happens, they no longer have emotional regulating capabilities, right? Because I haven't taught them how to do that. I usually just take it away from them. So I'm right. taking the opportunity to learn. So. Yeah, give, give them some reps doing that. Yeah. So then this leads us to this fourth S, which is secure. And it's not about feeling secure about yourself, although that for sure is an outcome of secure attachment. But when we have not perfect, because like I said, we can mess up all the time as parents, as long as we repair. If we have enough predictable experiences of feeling safe, seen and soothed, our brain actually wires to know that if we have a need, someone is going to see it and show up for us. And someone's going to really be there for us. And then the better part of this is even that because they've had these reps of feeling safe, seen, and soothed, their brain wires so they can show up for themselves. They can help themselves be safe and see and understand themselves and soothe themselves and provide showing up experiences for the other people in their lives. So they all have healthier relationships. And Ben, the key to this is that keeping in mind that the way this brain is wiring is based on these relational experiences. So as a parent, if you start making shifts right now to help your child feel safer in a moment, to help your child feel seen, to soothe them and support them and be there for them when they're at their worst, their brain actually starts to change right away because as the experiences change, neuroplasticity takes over. So we can start making these shifts immediately and start to see a big change in our kids. So great. So one thing you touched on there and you said, that's a whole different talk. I'm going to go into that, right? Because we briefly brought it up, this concept of intentionally perhaps teaching them self-discipline. Yeah. I think that's a big area of contemplation maybe for certainly me and the guys that I know and the parents that I know. Yeah. So I'd love to have you maybe start to just open up some strategy there around, okay, well, how do we start doing that? Yeah. So it starts with a total mind shift about what discipline is. Most parents, and I've seen this over and over again in my offices, most parents' discipline philosophy is that they don't have a philosophy. It's more like fly by the seat of the pants discipline, which is the kid does something, you have a reaction to it, and you say or do the first thing that you feel like doing. 
right? And then maybe even later you come up with a rationale for why you did that, right? right? Like you might say, like, you hit your brother, you clearly can't be with people today. So go to your room. I'm canceling your play date. You clearly can't be with people today. But I didn't think that through. I just thought, go to your room. And now I'm going to just, I'm going to use my prefrontal cortex to justify why I did that. That sounds like I'm being a, a thoughtful parent, right? right? But here's the mindset shift. We have lost our minds when it comes to discipline. The way we see and understand and respond to kids' behavior makes very little sense if you understand how the brain and nervous system works. So the whole point and purpose of discipline is to create a child who is self-disciplined. So if you're an effective disciplinarian, you actually are disciplining less and less and less over time. So my kids, like I said, are 13, 17, and 20. I certainly spend time saying like, hey, do you notice all the cheese you left on the counter? And if you don't pick it up, someone else has to. So take care of that. So I'm definitely still addressing behaviors and things like that. Or actually even better, I might say, hey, I want you to look at the counter. What do you notice? Because I want their brain to be doing the heavy lifting. So I'm definitely addressing things with my behavior. But my husband and I spend very little time on discipline because we spent so much time on it when they were little. And I want to define what I mean when I say discipline. I mean teaching and skill building. So here's the big mind shift. Discipline is not about punishment. Punishment, in fact, is often counterproductive. And I'll say why. But discipline, if we go back to the origins of the word, and you think about disciplines in college or Jesus's disciples, like the way the word has been used in its origin is it's about teaching and learning and skill building. So when I am an effective disciplinarian, I am an effective teacher where I'm teaching my kid a better way to do things and to build the skills so that they can do it themselves without me having to interfere or be on them about it over and over and over. So if the whole goal is for the child to learn, we have to remember that the nervous system brain is either in a receptive state where it can learn or it's in a reactive state where it can't learn. And most of what we do in the name of discipline, where we throw punishment at them or we scream and yell or we, you know, whatever, or we threaten them, actually makes the brain more reactive yep. and less able to even learn. So it takes a total mind shift. So I would say just as a starting step, obviously our book, No Drama Discipline, goes into this in detail. But what we can do is say, okay, whatever's happening in the moment, what is the skill I want my child to learn? What is my child's behavior communicating to me that they don't yet know? So instead of me doing something to my kid, like give them a punishment or a consequence, what I'm going to do is go, okay, my kid's telling me he doesn't yet have the skill to handle his anger well. He hits his brother when he gets angry. That's not okay. He doesn't yet have the skill to regulate that anger. So my job is to teach him how to do that. And if I teach him, then we won't have any more hitting of the brother as development unfolds and as he gets practice regulating that. So it's really all about focusing on teaching. So we can ask ourselves, what is the lesson I want my child to learn? What is the thing they need to learn? And then the second part is, what is the most effective way to teach that? And when we ask that question, most of what we typically do in the name of discipline is, does, is not the right answer. So it's really about rethinking all of our discipline. And I think one big mistake we make as parents is we do so much of the mental lifting so we say, you know, you hit your brother, you know, and, and we might even say, like, go tell your brother you're sorry. Well, if you're still in a reactive red zone state, you're not sorry. You can't even access the part of your brain that feels empathy. Right. Or if I say, go to your room, I'm taking away your play date today. 
when they go to their room and or time out or whatever, they're not sitting there reflecting on how they went wrong and what they should do differently. They are thinking about how mean you are to put them there and how it was the brother's fault and you love the brother more than them. Like it, it does zero when it comes to teaching. So what I would do in the moment, and this is for a little bit older kid, like five and up, is to say, I know you know it's not okay. Well, first I would make sure I was calm. I got to be in the green zone first. If I'm going to be an effective disciplinarian teacher, I have to be in a receptive state. So I'm going to breathe and take a break and make sure I'm green. Second thing I'm going to do is make sure my kid is ready to learn. And so what I might need to do first is safe, seen, and soothed. I might have to help them calm down first. Take a breath. Do you need a hug? Don't worry. I'm going to address the behavior, but I'm going to do it in an effective way. So once they're calm and we say, hey, we need to talk about what happened with your brother. I know you know it's not okay to do that. So what happened? And I'm going to put the mental burden on my child so that they have to use their brain and get those reps to think through what was happening for me? And I might even say, well, how did you feel that in your body? Like, how did you know you were so angry you were going to hit him? Could you feel that in your body before you hit him? And then I'm going to ask him, what do you need to do to make it right? And let him come up with that. And the other thing I'm going to do is maybe a little bit controversial. And that is to let my kid feel a little bit of what we call healthy guilt. Now, There's a big difference between shame, which is like you're a horrible, broken person and you'll never amount to anything. That's shame and that's really bad for kids. So don't do that. But we have a conscience. And if we think about this evolutionarily and in terms of our evolution, we had to be in groups of people. We had to be in tribes in order to survive. If we were alone out in the savannah, we could get eaten and no one would have our back and help us watch for the dangers, right? We had to be in groups in order to survive. So we have this really deep in the brain thing that is about our conscience. And so when we violate the mores of our group and our tribe, we get this feeling called guilt. And it's a really uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling. Guilt feels terrible. And the nervous system is wired to avoid what is unpleasant. So when we allow our children to feel a little bit of guilt, and I don't mean in an emotional and manipulative way, I'll give you an example. But when we allow them to sit in that feeling, it is the best, most effective disciplinarian that will wire their brain to do what's right over time. So my son came running into the bathroom one time, he was probably eight and said, JP five starred me. And that is, I didn't know what that was, but do you know what this is? You hit someone. Yeah. My your... son does it all the time. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know where he got it from. You leave a handprint that, so it's like, it makes the five points of a star. So I, and I lifted Luke's shirt up and sure enough, JP's hand was on Luke's back and I could see his handprint. So first I comforted Luke. That must, looks like it really hurt. I'm so sorry. And he was like, just go deal with him. Right. So I come around the corner And JP is totally in the red zone, unreceptive state. His eyes are wide, his jaws clenched, his hands and, you know, his body is firm and rigid, like in a really tense way. He's breathing fast. I can almost feel his heartbeat coming out of his chest. So I know in that moment, he is not ready to learn. He is not in a receptive state. He is red zone kid. So I have to turn his dial down. So I say to him what I would say if he scraped his knee. I say, oh, honey, come here. What happened? And I wrap my arms around him and I take slow breaths and I rub his back and he starts to tell me about this horrible thing his brother did to him, right? So as he's saying, and I'm making sure Luke's not hearing this conversation, by the way. So then he's saying, you know, Luke did this and I say, oh, that would have made me so mad too. No wonder you felt so angry, you know? And so I'm really just validating, giving him that scene. 
And then once he takes a deep breath and I can feel his little body relax, and this is like a minute and a half, two minutes, that comfort empathy thing works so fast, typically. And if not, sometimes it takes a little bit more time to just stay with it because it really will, empathy and connection can turn that dial down faster than anything. So then his body relaxes and I say, hey, I know you know it's not okay to do that. So what happened? And he starts talking about how he felt left out and it's never fair. And I say, I know it's so hard. And then I say, you know what, though, you really hurt Luke. And I had actually taken a picture of Luke's back, not for slideshow presentations or anything, I promise. But Luke couldn't see it and he wanted to see it. So I took a picture. And so I showed JP on my phone. I said, you really hurt Luke. Look. And I showed him the picture of the handprint. And JP did this. He dropped his head. His shoulders went down and I knew he was feeling that feeling of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or that feels bad. I'm, oh, I'm feeling some regret. And I let him feel it. So I say, I can see you're feeling bad that you hurt Luke like that. And I say, that's a really important, good feeling you have. That feeling you have right now inside of you is the thing that tells you what's right and wrong. How awesome that you have that feeling. It's telling you that was not okay. So now, you know, when you get that feeling, you should not do what's about to happen. Like, that's so great. You have that, that like compass inside you that tells you that. So I celebrate that feeling and I've let him feel bad. His attention has gone to like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then we talk about how to make things right with Luke. Now, I promise you, Ben, if I had sent him to his room and just taken away his play date or thrown a mm-hmm. consequence at him, he would have blamed everything on Luke and me. And he would have never taken any kind of personal responsibility for what happened. But when I comforted him first, he could then get to empathy. He could get to learning. And he could get to thinking about what role he played. And he could feel that feeling of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That is a powerful discipline moment. That's so, so it's hard though. Oh my gosh. It's so hard to do as a parent. It feels so much better and so much easier to just yell or take things away or throw consequences. Yeah. That's what intentional discipline looks like is my whole goal is to teach, teach, teach over and over and over until my kid's brain is wired. And then I don't have to teach it anymore. So amazing. So the three books we mentioned today are The Power of Showing Up, The Whole Brain Child, and No Drama Discipline. Is there more resources that you have for? Yes. So my website is tinabryson.com, and you'll find lots of free content on there, lots of blogs and videos about how we talk to our kids in ways that give them safety messaging instead of threat messaging when things are scary in the world, things like that. And then, Ben, I have a new book coming out September 1st of 2020. That's my first solo book, and I'm so excited about it. And it's a very different kind of book. It's called The Bottom Line for Baby. And it's for parents with infants, new parents. And it's alphabetical. And you can flip to the topic you want. And it's the 65 most debated controversial topics that you get competing advice about, like sleep training, for example. And you flip to the S and you see sleep training. And it lays out the arguments you know, on all sides. It says, here's what the science says in very short form. And then there's a bottom line that gives you the the science-informed part. And so it's called The Bottom Line for Baby. Gosh, thank you. It was the book I needed and wanted so much. Intentional. And it really gives parents, it empowers them to like get informed by the science. But I also really empower parents to really trust their instincts and to follow their baby's leads and not be 
listening to everybody else, including the experts a lot of times. So anyway, I'm proud of that book too. Every hospital in the world should have that in their gift shop, right? Because you're always like, what am I going to buy for a newborn mom? Well, we even address circumcision. They should buy it before the baby's born. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Dr. Tina Bryson, thank you so much. That was absolutely incredible. Everyone can find the podcast at muscleintelligence.com slash podcast. You get the show notes there. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. How did you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Bryson? I know I loved it. It was an amazing chat that I got to have so we can all benefit. And I feel incredibly blessed to be part of this community, leading people around the world, creating a shift in the fitness community toward intelligent muscle building. All of us are exercising. All of us are training hard. Do it in a way that actually gets your results and stop using excuses like genetics or time or lack of knowledge. All that stuff is absolutely nonsense because the information is right there at your fingertips if you choose to take it. And the best place for you to engage with it is in the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group. We're giving away tons of free assets all the time. We're also offering a $1 trial of the MI40 Nation. If you guys want to check that out, you can head over to the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group. You can head over to mi40nation.com and check that out. You can get your $1 15-day trial. And I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to want to stick around and get access to all the workouts and all the videos and all the articles and all this stuff that I incessantly write to put up there. You're going to get lots of backlogs of videos and interviews and tons and tons more and ongoing things. We're always doing new at-home workouts. We're doing new, a new workout every six weeks, all personally written by me. Super high quality and you're going to love it. And we're now offering coaching on the site. So if you, love, if you want something like that, head over to Muscle Intelligence Facebook group or you can head over to muscleintelligence.com to join us there. Enjoy your day. Thank you for being here. Live your greatest life in a body you love. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.